Good morning to all of you. Um, as uh, David said, my name is Ephraim Radner. I teach theology at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto, uh, along with my wife, Annette Brownlee, who's here somewhere in the back. There she is, she raised her hand. Um, we're really glad to be here. Um, over the years, uh, Annette and I have come to know and to greatly respect and to deeply love a number from your midst, students who went on to be clergy here and elsewhere and so on. Um, David Barr here is one of my students and amongst those we most deeply know, respect and love. Um, he's a doctoral student of mine. Cherish him and Caroline and, and their family. They're, they're really jewels in the crown of the Lord's diadem. This is the first time we've been able to worship with you. And I'm repeating myself, but I'll say it again because it's very important. When uh, the earlier service, when we started, um, and we lined up in the back and the organ went up and the choir began to sing and we processed in, I realized it was the first time in two years, given the restrictions up in Toronto, that we have actually sung in a church with a choir. Two years. And it's glorious, glorious. The Lord has blessed us in this and blessed you in a special way. And, and I thank the choir before. I want to thank you again. You're part of the instrument of God's blessing in a major way. Um, I, I, it would be appropriate for me, I think, to speak of today's gospel, which is Luke's version of the so-called Beatitudes, in part because they're very familiar to us from uh, Matthew's version in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you. So on. And all of these blessings, known as the Beatitudes, um, sound, and rightly so, as words of encouragement to us. They are words that are meant to encourage us. But as you will have noted, um, the second part in Luke's version that we heard today contain warnings that Jesus also adds. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who are laughing now. Woe to you when all speak well of you. Which are somewhat worrisome, I would imagine, to hear. Now, I'm going to circle back briefly at the end of my remarks to uh, Jesus' words, but actually, I want us to focus on the reading from Jeremiah that we first heard this morning, because I don't think Jesus' words of blessing and woe, which we heard in today's gospel, make much sense without first grasping a little bit, at least, of what Jeremiah is proclaiming. Because Jeremiah, in a way, is giving an answer to the deep question that lies at the root of Jesus' proclamation that the poor are blessed and the rich are terribly burdened. And what I'm going to say may seem fairly obvious to everybody. Somebody once said, not uh, in a flattering way, that Ephraim, you tend to say the obvious in the most obscure and complicating ways. Um, I, I don't think the latter part is something I like to hear, but I'm okay about saying the obvious. Because in this case, the obvious 
is the doorway to the truth. Now, the deep question that Jeremiah is getting at is one I think many people ask. And my son Isaac, when he was around eight or nine, I remember asking it of me. Why God? Why God? Now, Isaac at that age did not doubt God, mind you. Kids rarely do. They have to get older before they doubt. Our son Isaac went on to study philosophy and all those doubts flourished for him to wrestle with. But when kids are small, they believe. But they don't quite understand why. They don't have reasons to give. And so that's for us to be able to offer, assuming we understand it. And I've asked this question, why God? Myself, personally, I've asked it of others. I've asked it in classrooms. Um, I've asked it in confirmation classes. I didn't realize we were going to have all the confirmands at the earlier service, so that was good that they were there. I've asked that question, why God? And the most common answer I have gotten, especially from adults, is something like, God is my mainstay. That's why. Which is quite accurate. And it's an accurate translation of the, trans, uh, of the word Jeremiah uses in verses uh, 5 and 7 of that 17th chapter from which we read today, the word trust. Trust in God means in Hebrew literally hold firm or rely on or lean upon, which is again a mainstay that works. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, Jeremiah so what do we mean by that? And people will say, well, I trust in the Lord. That means God gets me through. And then, well, do we mean that in the same way that we describe another person when we say, for instance, so-and-so is my good friend. She calls me up when I'm in trouble. I do the same for her. We're each other's mainstay when times get tough. I knew two women in their late 80s who had been friends since kindergarten, literally. And they would say that about each other. But you realize, getting to know their stories, that there were long gaps during those 80 years, having families, moving to different states, uh, upheavals in their lives, lost addresses, forgotten phone numbers, and so on. Is that the case for God, too? Why God? It is the case that Jeremiah speaks of the one who trusts God as being like a tree that survives drought and heat. He also speaks of water and fruit that is unceasing. That is, it's given not sometimes, but all the time, at all times. And that seems to me key, at all times. Because if God, according to Jeremiah, then God always, not just in tough moments, certainly not just in good times, but God always. So that's the first reason to give for the question, why God, God always. But Jeremiah says God, it says more, why God? We should realize that Jeremiah in chapter 17, from which we read, is speaking of 
trust in the context of his own very personal situation. And if you read earlier, chapter 16, you get a sense of it. It was a time of God's terrible judgment upon Israel. And Jeremiah had been personally tasked by God with delivering God's divine promises of punishment and destruction. Not only that, God says to Jeremiah, while you're at it, and because of what you're about to do, you better not marry or have any kids. Because the situation that is unfolding is going to be very dire. There will be horror. There will be destruction. Rather, trust in me. That's your job, God insists. Why? Well, because you hold all the strings, perhaps. Always, as I said. All the strings. And that's true. And that means that in every situation, in the good and in the bad, when you have it all, and when all of it is taken away. As you remember, Peter says to Jesus, when all the disciples, or many of them, start running away, Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, well, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So if God, then God, but also God everywhere. That's two reasons why God. Jeremiah then goes on, why God? And here, at the opening, as you saw or heard, Jeremiah contrasts God with human beings. Don't trust them, he says. Cursed be those, in fact, who trust in mere mortals. They're weak. They die. And most especially, they're corrupt. They're filled with deviousness, lying, unreliability. There's no stability in human beings. But God, well, God is strong. God is permanent. God is clear. God is honest. Not like the rest of us. Not even like your best friends. So you think. Not even like your parents. Like no one else, in fact. There is none like God, Isaiah says. None at all. And the psalmist writes, Though my father and my mother abandon me, yet will I trust in God. And it happens, parents abandon you, for all kinds of reasons, illness and death among the most frequent, but not God. If God, then God always, God everywhere, and yes, God alone, only God. And I think maybe the only part is the hardest for us to grasp, because our lives are about so many things, not just one thing. So many good things, so many demanding things, so many distracting things, and yes, so many depleting and painful things. And when you say only God, it seems to brush away all of this, but in a fashion that not only doesn't make sense, but seems unrealistic. How can you have only God? We're not like the desert monks you ever read about them in the early church who go off to the Egyptian desert and they leave everything behind and so on. That's a fantasy. Nobody can be like that and the desert monks weren't even like that. Only God sounds like the syllogism to, uh, the conclusion to a syllogism that only a theologian would put together, not like reality. 
but I'm not so sure that's the right response. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older. Maybe a pastoral career that has put me in the midst of and beside other people who are much like me, but now stripped, literally like the desert monks, of all they trusted. Though mostly against their will stripped, not because they tried to. Like one man I knew who was dying, whom I went to see in the hospital. Normal businessman. He had a family, wife, kids, home, job. And in the hospital, where the end was pretty much settled, coming, inescapable, he tells me, he surprises me, looking up into my face and quietly quoting the words of Therese of Lisieux, a 19th century Catholic nun who dies when she's 20 years old and wrote a journal that became famous. He quotes her words. Everything is grace, he says. All is grace. God only. And I think he said it with me at the time with some astonishment. And not a little fear, but also with a deep recognition and satisfaction. All is grace. I wanted to ask him, how do you know? But he did, and I saw it. And I just wish that this time of the virus we've been in over the last two years could help us see what he saw and knew and what others are forced to know without wanting to. Why God? Because always God. Because everywhere God. Because there is only God. Totality. Now that doesn't mean that everything is God. As I said, we know that our lives are filled with a host of wonderful, demanding, distracting, difficult things, and these are not insignificant. They are exactly what makes up the fullness of our lives. To say God is everything, God is totality, is to say that all these things that make up our lives are His, His gifts, His trusts, if you will, His tools, His means, His ends, His own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, Paul writes in one place famously. You belong to God. And hence, this whole host of things that makes up your lives, and thus that come and go, and that we have no ultimate ownership over, that last only a while, that are supremely mortal, all these are in fact goods. They're valuable. They're worth paying attention to for they are of God. They're tied to God. They're geared towards God. All this is worthy of God. And in this sense, all these things that make up our lives, as they are turned to God, are lasting because they're His. If you sit here and you think about what happened to you this whole last week, You've probably forgotten half of it. I certainly have. 
They were normal things. Maybe they were abnormal things. I don't know. But if you can think for a moment of them, think also they were and are gods. So Jeremiah says, blessed are those who trust in the Lord. And then he repeats it to emphasize it. Whose trust is the Lord. We trust in the one from whom all comes, to whom all goes, and with whom all is real and true. We trust because this reality that is our lives is what it is, is at all, because of God. Trust in the Lord. The phrase is among the most repeated exhortations in the Bible. In the Psalter alone, it occurs more than 30 times alone. Yes, it's obvious. And Jeremiah calls a person with such trust blessed. Barak. And whether they did it well or not, certainly this is what the desert monks were after. The blessing of holding on to God always. They call constant holding on to God the highest calling a Christian could have. The totality of God lived out. Not just in heaven, not just eventually as it were, but here and now. Because, in fact, here and now is already the totality of God's offering. Can you imagine doing that? The totality of God lived out. From one perspective, of course, you will live it out. <laughs> we all will at some point, like it or not. There will be a day when each of us will be left with nothing but the totality of God. For what do we possess of our own that lasts, after all, that is always, that persists everywhere, or that alone survives all else? Paul says in another of his famous verses, what do you have that you are not given? And here perhaps he's echoing Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Though Job adds rightly, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed, as Jeremiah says, those who trust not in mere mortals, but in God alone, from whom and for whom and in whom all mortal life finds its place. So I'm hoping that maybe you're beginning to get a little sense of why Jesus would say, blessed are the poor and woe to you who are rich. Why God? I know nothing I could offer you in his place. Were I some grand magician? Not a, not a job, not health, not children, not happiness. In part, Jeremiah lived, prophesied, suffered, and wrote in order to show us this. All of us do for one another. We exist in order to show each other this and prepare each other for this truth. God alone, trust in him. On more than one occasion, I have had to wrestle with a tough decision. Do I talk to someone about God or not? About the allness of God, about trust in God? 
which might strike you as an odd thing to struggle over for a priest and a theologian. But in fact, as you probably know, most priests and theologians are introverts. It's hard for us to share the things that are deepest in our hearts with others, even though we've committed our lives to doing so. It's almost as if sharing it renders it common or superficial somehow. And we've all seen that kind of trivializing of the truth frequently enough. And so, we desperately want to speak about what we know is most important, but it's hard. On most of these occasions for me, grace has won out, thank goodness. Someone was in trouble. Trouble whose resolution had to do with trust in God. A child killing herself with an eating disorder or addiction. Someone whose job has exploded in a toxic waste dump of ugly human betrayal. A person who is about to leave their spouse and children behind because the cancer can't be stopped. The challenge, but also the promise, was to hold on to God only. Not to our self-deceptions, to other people's uh, expectations and limited hopes and destructive fears. My choice, you see, was to let this person go and face it on his or her own, or with whatever difficulty I could try to speak of God, always and everywhere and alone. Believe me when I say I've struggled in doing this. Do I speak of God or not? Of the everything of God this person so desperately needs to grasp and be grasped by. You see, whatever the obstacles and resistances there might be, you and I must do so. We're just here, just now, just in this hard place with this person has been given the chance to face who they in fact are with God. A chance that is worth a lifetime because it is just such a lifetime that we are given. You and I have to speak this. But we often don't, not even to ourselves. Yet, there is one who has so spoken. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who mourn and who are hated. Blessed. And woe to you if you think you have everything. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. Thanks be to God.